This is They Create Worlds, episode 100, The 100 Most Influential Games, part 3. Welcome to They Create Worlds, episode 100. And I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Hi, Alex. I'm Jeffrey, your co-host. And this is episode 100. That's a lot of episodes. That is a lot of episodes. I feel tired and thirsty because this is the third of three straight episodes that we have done all together in a streaming environment. Because we are sometimes crazy people. Some of us more than others. But yeah, here we are, 100 episodes. Did you ever think it would get this far? Honestly, no. Well, there you go. I had this thought this thing would like, one or both of us would get bored and tired with this thing like a year or two in. Yeah, we covered all the stuff in video game history. There's nothing really else out there. We wouldn't have anything to really talk about more on past, eh, maybe 50 episodes. <laughs> well, I never get tired of talking about things. I always get afraid that Jeff's going to be finally like, this whole editing to make Alex look like he knows what he's doing is way too hard. I'm going to stop now. <laughs> That's why I thought we might not make it. I'm impressed that uh, you've kept up with the editing of this for four years. It's insane, isn't it? <laughs> and then I just keep upping the studio slowly but surely. That's right. Eventually, he will become the studio. I am the studio. You'll just be absorbed into it. You'll be like Shodan. But we already covered Shodan. I know. That's why I mentioned it. Oh, my. You'll just be the AI at the heart of the studio. That's true. Guiding and directing all. <laughs> we have covered 80 games in the last two episodes, which leads us with just 20 for this episode. So this one's going to be extra short, right? <laughs> no. Uh, no. So, yeah, as I mentioned at various times in, in the previous episodes, we decided that the best way to do this would be to do a 40-40-20 kind of approach because that would give us a little more time to spend on the last 20. And we decided that while the list in general would not be ranked, that we would choose 20 games that we would say for the final episode and consider them the quote-unquote most influential. We're not going to rank these in numerical order. In fact, we're going to take them in essentially chronological order. It won't be chronological order down to the month, and some of it may be fudged slightly, but we're going to take these in essentially chronological order, explain how they moved the industry forward. Uh, just as a recap, as I did in the first couple of episodes, these are the 100 most influential games. That doesn't necessarily mean most popular, most successful, or the first at doing this or that. We're more interested in impact on the larger industry and chains of influence on uh, the games of today. We aren't looking at anything too modern because it's about influence. So a game today is going to influence the games that come out in the next 5, 10, 15 years. And we don't know what games of today, even if they're super popular, are going to be the ones that influence the next generation. So it mostly peters out in the 2000s with a couple of exceptions. It is strictly focused on games, not mods, not computer systems, not video game systems, not board games. 
it was based on board games, then like we would have a number one most influential of all time and it would be Dungeons and Dragons. But while there are games that call themselves Dungeons and Dragons and there are video games based on Dungeons and Dragons, there's not Dungeons and Dragons, the video game. There is Dungeons and Dragons, the movie, but we don't talk about that. Of course we don't. And unlike the uh, previous episodes, we only have one column this time, and it is in the order of presentation. That's right. So there'll be none of this, Jeff says a game, and I'm like, no. It takes us three times. You always have that whole, (laughs) the third iteration of something really takes root. So it's like the third episode of the podcast, we sort of got into a groove. The third episode of trying to list 100 games, we're in a groove. We got a plan. Let's go and blow the whole thing up somehow. Of course we're going to blow things up. We're going to be in space war, having space epic combat between the two of us. All right. So the very earliest game on the entire list, and definitely one of the most influential games of all time, is beyond any shadow of a doubt, Space War. Quite frankly, the industry we have today, obviously, counterfactuals, butterfly effect, you'd still have an industry. But the industry we have today would not be nearly the same if it was not for this game, Space War. Space War is the first game that you can say some people created it, it got shared widely, it influenced other people, and it had a direct impact on the industry. We did a whole episode on Space War, so I won't talk about it for too long, but I do get to talk about it for a little bit because we don't have 40 games to get in this time. Space War was created by a bunch of Harvard programmers, MIT students, assorted hangers-on, etc., on the PDP-1 system in the uh, Research Laboratory for Electronics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It was really the first time that a group of casual programmers had consistent access to a system. In the 1950s, the few computers that were out there were basically for official business. You were doing research on them. You were doing business on them. You were not just fooling around with them. Jack Dennis, who had been a programmer on the Whirlwind, discovered that he could gain access to that Whirlwind computer late at night when the operators weren't around. He thought this was a great thing. He believed in student experimentation. And so when the RLE got the precursor to the PDP-1, the TXO computer, It was a computer that didn't have a lot of purpose, that was never going to be used all the time just for research, because it was in a way a little bit of a curiosity or or an oddity. It was donated. So he said, I think students should be able to experiment on computers. I'm going to let students experiment on computers. And that hacking scene that we talked about that developed first on the TXO and then on the PDP-1 was one of the first opportunities for curious people to get a look at computers and do whatever the heck they wanted with them and not just do serious research. It's the environment that allowed a game like Space War to exist when that PDP-1 came, and it was a great advanced computer for its time, not in terms of being the fastest computer on the planet, but just in terms of being interactive in being almost personal even though it's not a personal computer, and having a great monitor led these three guys, Steve Russell, Martin Greitz, and Wayne Wheatonen, to get together and be like, let's make some kind of interesting and stimulating demo program. And then Wayne Wheatonen was like, that should be a game. 
And they were all like, yeah, a game. And they loved science fiction. So they created this duel between two spaceships, and that was Space War. Of course, that's oversimplifying what happened next, modified, changed, explored by all these people at MIT, by the Tech Model Railroad Club crowd, by the AI Lab crowd, and then spread across the country. The thing that set it apart, of course, is that it made it out of MIT. It made it to Stanford. It made it to a lot of other places, but Stanford was the big one. Because then at Stanford, where Steve Russell personally took it when he joined John McCarthy at the AI lab out there, it was experienced by one Mr. Nolan Bushnell. He never went on to do anything. (laughs) That's right. For those of you keeping score at home, yes, Nolan Bushnell says he saw the game at the University of Utah. No, he probably didn't. If you want to know more, we have other episodes that talks about that. At least two. I do have to try to get this episode done in something under 30 hours. Now, as a quick aside, you did get to go back east to the Smithsonian and actually got to do a retrospective with all the people who were the major players in the creation of Space War, correct? Yes, all the still living ones. Alan Kotok passed away. All the others were there. We talk about that in our Space War episode. So that was fun. Just an incentive to go back into the archives (laughs) if you're looking at episode 100 and going, I don't want to listen to 100 episodes. (laughs) Been there, done that, literally got the t-shirt. I've seen the t-shirt. I suppose I probably should have worn the t-shirt for this stream. You should have. That would have been, like, intelligent. But we're not about intelligence at uh, They Create Worlds. That's because we don't stream that often. We're about video games, those things that rot your brain. If we're going to cover things that rot our brain, we're just going to have to whack it back and forth. And so we're just going to have to play Pong. Right. Pong is our next game. So Space War, the big influence is it directly inspired Nolan Bushnell to start making video games. We have Atari because of Space War. There are other influences from Space War as well. Obviously, the game Space Wars, which we talked about in our Vector Graphics episode that launched the whole brief fad for Vector Graphics, was directly inspired by Space War. Star Control which is a game that has some fans out there, has a lot of elements directly inspired. Asteroids, we talked about asteroids with computer space. Computer space, which was derived from Space War, also influenced asteroids, but just Space War itself also influenced how asteroids came out. So it had a lot of impact in the early days, and it really shaped a lot of Atari's success in particular, because a lot of their early successful games, like Tank and like Asteroids, can in some way or another be traced back to Space War, and just the fact the company exists. So our second most influential game, I mean, not in terms of ranking, but just the second one we're talking about, is Pong. Some people might be like, well, you should put Odyssey Table Tennis there, because it was just a ripoff of Odyssey Table Tennis. Okay, but first, no, and second... No, I thought second, we already covered it. Yeah, well, we did, but we could have saved it for the top 20. Well, fine. Obviously, Pong would not have existed without Odyssey Table Tennis. Atari would have made something. Atari may have even made something highly successful. But whatever they made, it wouldn't have been Pong. But the Odyssey did not launch the industry. Ralph Baer would get very salty about Pong and how it was taken from his product. There's about as much relationship between Table Tennis and Pong as there is between Touch Me and Simon. Not sure he really has that much space to talk. But the point is, there was a concept that existed. Somebody else came up with the basic ideas of it first, but then Atari, and specifically Al Alcorn, came along and they refined it. And they made it really good and really fun. There were some real limitations to the Odyssey. And the main one was, 
that there were no ball physics whatsoever, not even rudimentary, could just generate spots. They compensated for this by having a dial on the controller that you could use to kind of manipulate the spot on the screen a little bit. But there really weren't really good physics. Pong had the angles of deflection on the paddle, so it, depending on which part of the paddle it hit, changed the direction it went. And it also had the speed up on rallies to make the game more exciting as the game went on. And it was able to simplify the controls from three dials down to just a single dial. So they created the first game that was really fun, exciting, and interesting to play. And then they put it out in the world of coin-operated games, and it just blew up. Now, Pong was a fad. We talked about that. We had a whole Pong episode where we talked about how, okay, Pong did this, but it didn't really birth the video arcade game industry because it fell off a cliff after a year or so, and then it took other games slowly building it back up before you had something sustainable. So yeah, it was a fad. It was, it was the hula hoop. It was. But it's the fad that got everything moving. It's the game that made Atari. And it's the first game that Taito, which created Space Invaders, put out. And it was the first game that Midway put out was uh, Pong. And it was the first game that Sega put out. I mean, a lot of the big players in the industry got into video games through the Pong fad. So even though it didn't just like, ta-da, video games, we owe the industry to Atari and Pong. And so even if the gameplay was derivative of a previous game, and even if it was a fad that didn't last... And even if the specific gameplay of it doesn't really have any relevance to what's going on in the video game world today, we, to a large degree, have an industry because Pong was a thing. You really have to put it on that top 20 in my mind. Definitely. So I guess we're going to have to go on a little adventure then. So we did 2600 adventure already, but we're talking OG adventure, Colossal Cave itself. Half the games in the industry only exist in part because of this game. If you're playing an MMO, you owe a debt to adventure. If you're playing a roguelike, you owe a debt to adventure. If you're playing any Zelda game or Metroidvania, you owe a debt to adventure. And if you're playing an adventure game, you owe a debt to adventure. We talked in the last episode, how many games have a genre named after them? There are a few. There's roguelikes. There's Metroidvanias. I'm sure there are a few others if I really stop to think about it. And there is adventure. We have adventure games. And it's all because of this pioneering product right here. The basics of how that game came together, again, which is why Dungeons and Dragons should really be the OG most influential game, but it's not in its basic form a video game, so we can't do that. You had a guy, Will Crother, who had been recently divorced, he didn't have as much time with his daughters. He didn't have the time he needed to properly connect with them. He was a caver. He had just started playing D&D not that long before. And so he decided, I'm going to make a game that my daughters can play, that we can share together. It's going to be very exploration-focused, very similar to my caving activities. In fact, I'm even going to set it in the cave that I have been mapping and using computer programs at my employer, BBN, to map which makes things very easy on the setting side of it. And then I'm going to mix in just a little bit of the fantastic from Dungeons and Dragons and that whole dungeon crawl experience. We'll have a game that we can play together. It goes by a lot of names, but Adventure, of course, is the one that it's most known by today. It was a huge event exactly because he worked for BBN. 
BBN was a defense contractor, both Baranek and Newman, was doing a lot of the grunt work in developing the infrastructure of what became the Internet. Will Crother himself was very involved in that work. He's one of the architects of the infrastructure of what became the Internet. So he makes a nice little game for his daughters. He probably doesn't even finish the game, quite frankly. There's a lot of signs that he just kind of, at some point, stopped because they're deeper down in the labyrinth. There are exits that don't lead anywhere. There's buggy exits. There's even one spot that literally has a sign on it that says under construction. So at some point, he probably just did get kind of bored with it and and stop. But he did decide to place it on the ARPANET because, of course, BBN had an ARPANET node because they were working on the ARPANET and the Internet and all of these things. And it's because of that that this little game spread around the country. There weren't many places that had ARPANET nodes, particularly civilian places that had ARPANET nodes in this 1976 time frame. But one of them was the Stanford Medical Center. So at Stanford at the Medical Center, it was discovered by a student, and then that student shared his discovery with Don Woods. Don Woods is really the one that is responsible for crafting what became known as kind of the classic text adventure format. Crowther had a little bit of exploration. He had a little bit of treasure hunting. He had a little bit of puzzle solving. Woods is the one that formalized the whole thing, wrapped a point system around it, put a defined objective of there are this many treasures, you have to go gather them all to get maximum points, and he put in a little bit more puzzles, and he put in more antagonists. Puzzles and antagonists were in the original, but Woods dialed it all up to 11. And then he really brought the fantasy element into it. There was fantasy in the original based on the Dungeons & Dragons experience, but Woods was actually not a D&D player, but he was a Tolkien guy. And so he brought in a lot of Tolkien-esque fantasy. So Adventure became the classic kind of treasure hunt adventure game that defined all of the very early days of adventure gaming. The whole exploration and inventory-based puzzle-solving thing, of course, survived well beyond the early days and into the graphical days and all the LucasArts stuff and all the Sierra stuff. I mean, it all harkens back to this one game. But of course, the influence does not stop there. Because, of course, Warren Robinette was inspired to do the console adventure game. So that entire track of games, from adventure to the arcade adventures in the United Kingdom, to the early Rare games, to The Legend of Zelda at Nintendo, and on and on and on, they all have adventure as a common ancestor as well. A bunch of guys at the University of Essex discovered through kind of a quirk in the way their timeshared system worked. They could get essentially multiple players into a single instance of adventure. And that became the starting point for their multi-user dungeon that they created. MUD for short. So that's the beginning of MMOs right there. You go from MUD through all of its MUD spinoffs through to the graphical stuff. The guys that created Rogue were inspired to create Rogue because they had played adventure and they had kind of enjoyed adventure, but they didn't like the fact that once you played adventure and once you beat adventure, you were done because you knew where everything was and there was no point to ever play it again. So they thought to themselves, what if we did a game where you're collecting treasure and doing this and that, except it's different every time you play it? You could argue that the whole craze with randomizer these days can owe a debt to that. Absolutely. 
So some of these influences are more tenuous than others. It's not like the gameplay of adventure inspired any rogue games, but the guys that made rogue probably wouldn't have made rogue if they hadn't played adventure first. Adventure is one of the most impactful games in the entire history of the medium because it got into all of those different spaces. That's why we've got it right here in our top 20. I guess we're going to have to go to the Far East and see all those invading aliens in Japan. Space invaders. It's kind of hard to imagine now, but in the 1970s arcade, you had two forms of competition. In a small number of games like Pong or like Tank, you were matching reflexes with another player. The first to a certain score wins the game. But in the vast majority of games, your only opponent was the clock. Arcade games were very expertly regulated. It made sense to kind of regulate them based on a clock because the conceit of the arcade is that people are paying for time. You put your quarter in and that machine is all yours as long as you can keep the game going. If the person playing the game keeps the game going too long, then you're losing money because you need someone to put that next quarter in. But if the player plays the game for too short a period of time, that's also a risk because if a person doesn't feel like they got value for their money, they're going to leave the game in frustration and never come back and you've lost all the future quarters or 100 yen coins or 10 pence pieces that that person may have potentially put into the machine. The easiest way to kind of regulate that was, well, we'll give them a time limit because that fixes it. They get, say, 90 seconds. Most games were tuned to give a player about 90 seconds of gameplay. In that period of time, they'll get to shoot all the things they want. They'll get to drive down all the roads they want. And if they shoot enough things or they drive far enough, we'll give them some bonus time. That was kind of the state of video games. I'm sure it was exciting in its own way. I mean, I'm not saying that none of these games were thrilling. Beat the Clock can be thrilling. But it wasn't all that exciting compared to certain other activities. It certainly wasn't as exciting as, say, pinball, where there's fast action, there's sights and sounds and buzzers and scores and all of this stuff. And there's real risk that, you know, miss your ball with the flipper and your time's up. But video games didn't really work that way. And video games really were not catching on vis-a-vis pinball, especially after pinball went solid state and those machines could get much more interesting and complex with the way they did scoring and scoring memory. The video game was lurching along and was kind of very close to dying out in that arcade setting. And then Tomohiro Nishikado comes along and he tries, as we said in the first episode, to create a shooting version of Breakout and discovers that it's no fun. Because a lot of the fun and challenge of Breakout came from having to catch that ricocheting ball. And if you don't have those ricochets, there's just not enough going on. So then he says, why don't I have the computer shoot back? This idea seems so simple today, but it was completely anathema to the entire idea of video games. When Space Invaders was debuted in Japan to uh, Japanese distributors by Taito, everyone said there's no way. This is going to work. It's too hard. You have these aliens shooting back at you. You have the aliens descending closer and closer. He wanted to keep something similar to a time limit in it without actually having a timer. 
which is why he has the descending aliens, because it acts as a timer. People are going to play this, they're going to get frustrated, and they're going to stop. Now, I honestly don't know, and this would be a good question to have an answer to, but I honestly don't know why the example of pinball was not instructive. Because, obviously, pinball works in that same way. You get three lives, three balls, sometimes five balls. You know, you play that ball until it goes away, and then, you know, you get another ball. I'm not sure why they didn't think that kind of pinball mentality would translate to video games. But, you know, video games were more thought of in the same terms as the novelty games, like the driving games and the shooting galleries, the electromechanical stuff. And those very much operated on this timer idea. So there was a lot of resistance to that. Until the players got it. Because the players were looking for something more interesting. Video games, quite frankly, were really overall not that interesting before Space Invaders. There were exceptions. But in the arcade, at least, not talking about things like adventure, which are going on in a completely different headspace. But video games in the arcade were not that interesting. And then Space Invaders comes and changes everything. This is exciting. It's thrilling. There's danger. But it feels fair. So yeah, maybe you die the very first time you play, you die quickly. But it feels fair. So you put that next quarter in and that next. You put that next 100 yen coin in until pretty soon there's shortages. And of course, the other big thing is we're going to put the high score on the machine. We're going to give every player something to strive towards. And that's getting the high score. That's the arcade in a nutshell. That's the way the arcade works for 20 years. Give them some challenge and give them a high score to chase. And you can trace it all back to the influences that Space Invaders has. Exactly. That's ground zero for all of that. And, you know, the entire shoot 'em up genre obviously springs out of that. Uh, you know, it moves from static on the screen to move around the screen to scroll the screen. You know, it gets more sophisticated. It all starts right there, and that's the game that cements video games as a major force. Obviously, there's a crash, so there's still ups and downs in there. But Space Invaders and the games that followed it created a movement. Pong was one game. There were clones and minor variations, but it was one game. Grew really big and then crashed. Space Invaders grew really big, and then at least in Japan, also crashed. But Head-On was there waiting. Galaxian was there waiting. Asteroids was there waiting. And so you had an industry, you had a sustainable move from game to game, some of which had very different gameplay mechanics. That's really the point where you got something consistent and popular following Space Invaders. Next one is what we already sort of talked about, but it's getting its own special time. MUD. Multiple user dungeon. That's right. I mean, MUD is so important on a variety of levels. Obviously, it goes to the whole MMO thing. I mean, the idea that multiple people can be running around in a world, fighting monsters, solving puzzles, doing this, doing that, gaining levels, that's a huge part of it. It was one of the very first shared video game spaces as well, which is partially saying the same thing, but it's about people taking on alternate personas. It's about what does it mean to be represented in a video game where you get to define your own character and the other people you meet are other human beings that are also defining their own character. So it's that whole experimentation of role play, of assuming even different genders than your own and experimenting within a shared social space. 
it's the beginning of the real social aspect of gaming within the game. Arcades were very social spaces. There was a big social aspect to playing video games in the arcade. But the social aspect of it wasn't within the game itself. It was with interacting with the other people around you as you were playing your individual game. This was about transporting to another world and interacting with other people in a shared game space. So obviously the direct analog to MMOs is appropriate here, but there's direct analogs there to any game where you're sharing a space, including multiplayer shooters. There's a little bit of mud in Fortnite, even if there really isn't a direct chain of causality there, because mud and all of the different muds, moos, mushes, and mucks that it spawned were really the first place where people explored what it meant to socialize within a game space. That's the other side of it, other than the direct, purely pedantic mechanics of mud spawned Abermud, which was a more combat-focused mud, and then Abermud spawned Deku Mud, and then Deku Mud spawned EverQuest, and then EverQuest spawned WoW. There's that, too. But yeah, Virtual Worlds. Mud was one of the very first one of those. Okay, we're going to have to go and rescue Pauline from Donkey Kong. So, you know, some of these could have gone a lot of ways again. And I did try with the top 20 to include various types of gameplay. I wanted to capture a little bit of this, a little bit of that. The reason Donkey Kong is in there is there is one mechanic in video games that is common in virtually any game that has a human or a humanoid protagonist in it that is often the solution to many different problems, even though none of us ever, ever, ever do that in real life. And that's the jump. But I do jumping jacks. <laughs> yes. There's a fence in my way. I'll jump over it. Nope, I'm climbing over it. There's a platform over there. I'm going to jump to it. I'm going to step up. Yeah, I mean, it's a real human action, but it's a human action that doesn't really get used all of that much in daily life if you're not Indiana Jones. And even Indiana Jones does other actions a lot more than he strictly does jumping. But it is a core concept of what you do in a video game. It is a core solution to any problem involving reaching a place that you can't see, that you can't, uh, you know, just walk over to, I mean. It almost always involves at least one jump somewhere. And that really comes all the way back to Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong started as a platform game very much in the mode of, like, Space Panic, which we talked about earlier in this set of episodes. It was set in a construction site because it was originally going to be a Popeye game, and there was a particular episode of Popeye that Gunpei Yokoi kind of honed in on that took place on a construction site, so they were kind of basing it on that episode. It got set in a construction site, and then, of course, the characters developed. This isn't really about the creation of the Mario character, which we've talked about before. You know, the way of getting around was ladders, and there are still ladders in that first level of the game. Moving from platform to platform was very much using ladders and similar conveyances, just like in Space Panic, which had kind of pioneered this platform thing. But then Miyamoto had the barrels, you know, Donkey Kong was throwing the barrels. According to a lot of ants interviews, you know, they had the barrel thing. There had to be some way to overcome that, and just using ladders wasn't interesting. And so he just thought to himself, what would I do if a barrel was hurtling towards me? And it was like a narrow, constrained space. Like, there's no way to just take one step to the left 
and avoid the barrel, right? So what would I do if a barrel was hurtling towards me? I'd jump. So they added the jump mechanic is a way to avoid the barrel. Then jumping was kind of fun, so then jumping becomes also a way to kind of move around a little bit too, though you're still primarily using other conveyances in Donkey Kong to move around. The jumping is largely an obstacle avoidance thing. There it is, because Miyamoto decided that if he had a barrel running towards him, or rolling towards him, he would jump out of the way. We got jumping in games, and that just became such an indelible part of games after that point. You know, you saw it again in Pitfall, and you saw it again in Prince of Persia, and you saw it again in, you know, millions of other games. And it's just become such an ingrained part of video games and such an ingrained video game mechanic that even though we would never approach a problem by jumping at it in our everyday lives, when a game asks us to do it, we're like, okay, jump puzzle. That makes sense. Platforming. That's right. That's why Donkey Kong's on here. I mean, I think that just the introduction of the jump in that manner is significant enough to justify Donkey Kong. And that's even before you get to the whole, it was the birth of Mario thing, which, you know, he was a pretty big deal too. Well, speaking of Mario, we can always have Super Mario Brothers. I think you just have to go with Super Mario Brothers. It's just so important. I mean, it's the game that made Nintendo, Nintendo the big juggernaut, the big game company it is. I mean, yeah, Donkey Kong was a success, but it was actually a bit of a boondoggle too because they actually overdid it. They made too many of them and the game's popularity was not as great as they had hoped. It was kind of one of the first signs, I think, of the impending crash in the market, though nobody realized it at the time. It was the beginning of this period of rapid turnover where game's big for a couple of months and then it's dead. So Nintendo thought they'd have something that they could make for months and months, like a Space Invaders or a Galaxian or an Asteroids, and it turned out they didn't. Yeah, Donkey Kong was successful. It put them on the map in the arcade, but it also wasn't as successful as they had hoped it would be, and it wasn't as enduring as they thought it would be either. Super Mario Bros. is the game that made Nintendo Nintendo. Obviously, the way we think of a platformer today is still very Mario. I mean, Donkey Kong added jumping, but Mario is what we think of when we think of a platformer today. It's the prototypical platformer. It helped popularize the concept of power-ups. It included multiple types of gameplay, the swimming, the shooting. It wasn't really a platform shooter, but you did have the fireballs. So, I mean, that was kind of in the way, the beginning of kind of platform shooting. And it was meant to be a culmination. Because as we talked about, it was going to be the last cartridge-based game on the Nintendo Entertainment System. They were going to the disc system, and discs were going to be the future. So Miyamoto and Tezuka really put everything they could think of in there. It was meant to be the ultimate cartridge-based Famicom game. Taking place on land and sea and air, it was going to have shoot-em-up portions uh, when it was originally conceived. They didn't end up doing shoot-em-up stuff, but that was going to be in there too. It was going to just be everything. It was going to be full of secrets, full of this, full of that. And, you know, they really outdid themselves and created a classic still today, especially in the indie scene. I mean, anytime you do a game that has any platforming action, it owes some degree to Super Mario Brothers. I mean, you know, some people point to Pitfall, and you'll notice that uh, Pitfall wasn't anywhere in our top 100 list. Uh, you know, if it was top 300, it probably would be. Pitfall was a platformer before Super Mario Brothers was, but it wasn't a scrolling platformer. It was flick screen. It was very popular in its day, but it hit right when the crash was going on, so it didn't really have a chance to spawn a group of imitators 
or to become the ideal of what a platformer is. But Super Mario Brothers, because it was so big, it became the ideal of a 2D platformer. And so just because Pitfall was before it, it just in terms of influence, it's Super Mario Brothers. That parabolic jumping arc, you know, is another thing. The way jumping works in Super Mario Brothers isn't at all how jumping works like in the real world. You can't change your jump midair in the real world. That's not how physics work. That method of Mario jumping became very much video game jumping. The platforming of Super Mario Brothers became video game platforming and uh, definitely needs to be there. Well, we're going to have to go into space with Elite. So, of course, we did a whole episode on Elite. People can check that out. But going back to 1984, when Elite was done, shooting games in particular were just score-chasing games. The paradigm of video games was largely score-chasing. Occasionally, it was level completion. But still, a lot of it was score-chasing. That was kind of the arcade paradigm, and the early home games really followed that arcade paradigm pretty closely in both the United States and in the United Kingdom. There was this idea that video game worlds had to be constrained because you were taking people's quarters. So you were trying to regulate playtime so that they didn't get more than 90 minutes on a quarter or a minute and a half on a quarter. And so you would regulate that through difficulty. You would regulate that through lives. You would regulate that through endlessly looping gameplay. You were starting to get the idea of stage completion coming in a little bit. But even then, you're talking about existing in a finite space for a finite period of time. Some PC games, like adventure games and RPGs, were a little different than that, but they were still mostly about sending you through a fixed scenario to do a fixed set of things, even if there was some randomization involved in how that all played out. So David Brabin and Ian Bell decided that games did not just have to be about score chasing. They did not have to be about endless loops. They did not have to be about constrained worlds. We can create a huge galaxy, and we can give you some basic parameters of the kinds of activities you can do there, and we can give you a vaguely defined goal to become the elite. And then we can just turn you loose to explore this world at your pace, to gain that goal whatever way you want, whether you want to shoot and kill things, whether you want to trade things. You know, we're going to give you multiple avenues. Very little structure, very few rules, just endless possibility and exploration. It's the first real open world game. There were other games that took place in fairly open worlds. You could even say that Dungeon, the precursor to Zork on the uh, PDP-10, was in its own way a quote-unquote open world in the sense that you had a lot of freedom to approach things in your own way at your own pace. But there was still a structure in it at the end. There were still blocks at the end where it said, okay, you can go no further this way. Now you have to solve this or solve that or stop. Elite, you could just keep playing forever and ever with no end. Even after you got the elite designation, you could just keep going and experience that world. That was something that was pretty new in games. And of course, Elite was the primary influence on the Grand Theft Auto series which is the series that really modernized our idea of what an open-world environment is, and the game that so many open-world products that came after that were based on. But it itself was based on Elite, so absolutely humongously influential game for 
opening up the vistas of our video game worlds. I guess we'll have to go into a game that's coming out on the Switch in its 11th incarnation, Dragon Quest. I did not include any early computer RPGs on this list. Of 20 most influential. I mean, we've got Ultima, we've got Wizardry, they're here, but not in the top 20. I could have done, but the problem is, at the end of the day, it all goes back to Dungeons and Dragons, right? So really, the ideal thing to put on the top 20 influential list is Dungeons and Dragons. Wizardry exists in a roundabout way by going through the Chain of Play-Doh games because of Dungeons and Dragons. Ultima exists because of Dungeons and Dragons. You can't pick an Ur game. Once you start saying, I'm going to include an early computer RPG on my list of 10 or 20 most influential games, then the problem becomes you can't just do one. You have to include four or five to represent that. Because you really can't pick between Ultima and Wizardry or a Play-Doh game and say, that's the one. Because they were all influenced by Dungeons & Dragons. Well, the JRPG is different. The JRPG really has a starting point. And that starting point is Dragon Quest. We talked about Dragon Quest in detail in our uh, Square Enix episode. We've gone over this before. What you had in Dragon Quest was a distillation of what made the Western RPGs work, down to very simple forms so that they were less finicky and could be played by a younger console audience. Yuji Horii and Koichi Nakamura were familiar with Ultima and with Wizardry, and they enjoyed Ultima and Wizardry. And so they thought to themselves, what if we took the tile-based world of Ultima and more of the combat system of Wizardry, smashed those together, made them very bright and bouncy and kid-friendly, simplified the mechanics significantly, and then put that out on a console. And it was a game that really dove into manga culture as well, which was so important to its success, because, of course, Yuji Horii worked as a writer with uh, Shonen Jump, and so the editor of Shonen Jump got him together with Akira Toriyama so that Toriyama could do the graphics. This was pre-Dragon Ball, but he was already very well known for Dr. Slump, which was uh, very popular. So they got that manga aesthetic out of Toriyama's work and out of Shonen Jump. And they got that role-playing game aesthetic out of Ultima and Wizardry and these Western games that they had played. And they mixed it together. And at first, nobody cared. It was released and meh. But they tapped into that manga culture again. They partnered with Shonen Jump on a series of articles about the game and about the world. And then the young people just moved on it in droves. And it became a phenomenon, a phenomenon so great that when Dragon Quest III was released, it caused such widespread playing of the hooky that the Imperial Diet said, okay, from now on, you're not releasing these Dragon Quest games on a weekday anymore. It's the beginning of the Japanese love affair with the RPG. There were RPGs before it, even some successful ones like Black Onyx. We talk about all of that in one of our episodes, too, on early Japanese RPGs. This was the true beginning of the love affair of RPGs in Japan. It took some time, but eventually that love got re-exported back to the rest of the world. JRPGs were never popular in the U.S. in the NES or SNES periods. 
Many of them weren't even released in Europe in that period, particularly the NES games. But Final Fantasy VII finally flipped the bit on that and brought that in to the Western audience and it became kind of a global powerhouse. And of course, the first Final Fantasy game, even though it's mechanically and thematically was not inspired entirely by Dragon Quest, the very idea of doing an RPG was very much inspired by Dragon Quest. So that entire ecosystem of JRPGs up to the present day pretty much owes itself entirely to Dragon Quest. So that's why we had to put that in there. Next on the list is something that is well known. The story is out there. It's all over (laughs) the entire world. But only we were able to put it together in a cohesive line of transition. And that is Tetris. Tetris, uh, you know, I talked about this when we talked about some of the Match 3 games in the previous episode. It's not that the specific mechanics of Tetris are necessarily influential. It's not that Alexei Pashitnov, who created the game, went on to do great things, because he didn't. He tried his hand at a few other games, and none of them were nearly as good or nearly as successful. Tetris has to be on the list because it was the first game that showed that Yes, actually, video games can be for everybody. Arcade games were all about fast action and intensity. They were mostly played by teenagers. Console games were still based on a lot of the same ideas as the arcade games were, but softened just enough that they could appeal to more of the 6- to 12-year-old crowd that didn't necessarily have the pocket money to go spend $50 and quarters down at their local arcade. Early computer games in the United States, a little different in the United Kingdom and Europe, tended to be about more cerebral strategy things. Dungeons and Dragons is not for everybody. Solving inventory-based logic puzzles is not for everybody. Adventure games, RPGs, that kind of thing, they appeal to a very specific crowd. War games, flight simulators, very specific crowds that are very dedicated to these very finicky, hardcore areas. Tetris was the first widespread game. Again, you can always find earlier analogs, but the first widespread game that Grandma could find enjoyment in, Dad could find enjoyment in, a 3-year-old can find enjoyment in, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 100-year-old. There was something there for them. And it wasn't something that you had to dedicate a lot of time to. One of the things that allowed Pong to finally take off in the arcade where computer space didn't is that it was so simple anyone could pick it up. One dial. Turn it up and down. Clockwise, counterclockwise, whatever. Paddle goes up and down. Avoid missing ball for high score. Tetris, you know, it has a couple more buttons than that. You have to rotate a little bit. You can speed it up by pressing a button. It has a few more features. But four shapes, falling from, you know, top to bottom of the screen. Well, six shapes, whatever. But um, line them up, clear a row, row disappears. It appeals to something very fundamental in the human psyche. We tend to like to bring order to things. We like it when things all fit in their place and are tamed. That's the entirety of the human experience of civilization is this move towards order and neatness and everything in its proper place. Obviously, individual humans, your experience may vary, but that's kind of the thrust of the entirety of humanity over time, bringing order to chaos. 
So there's just something so satisfying about getting that final line piece that you've been waiting 50 turns for and watching five or six rows just disappear all at once. It hits that dopamine center in our brains in a very special way. And it can be very addicting. So this is a game that just, it appealed to everybody, and it showed video games really are for everybody. It's the beginning of the casual movement. I mean, there really wasn't a, a much of a movement that immediately followed it. There were some other games like Shanghai and Ishido and Columns that tried to replicate that same kind of gameplay. But most of those games appeared on platforms that still didn't have a general population base. IBM PCs were still mostly used in the office. They were not used by the general public. Arcade machines, like Klax, which Atari did. I mean, arcades were still for the hardcore of the hardcore. Tetris became the phenomenon it did because it was paired with the Game Boy. It wasn't the first platform, but it was the best platform. It was a relatively cheap platform. A person could buy that for playing just a single game like Tetris and not feel too guilty about the purchase. You know, it's one of those things that you might buy it for your kid and you look over your shoulder, oh, what are you doing? And, uh, you know, you see the game, oh, that's kind of cool. Can I try? And then pretty soon you're hooked. Could be apocryphal, but Hank Rogers likes to tell the story that with Game Boy, Nintendo was going to package Super Mario Land, the, the latest Super Mario game, with the system. Hank Rogers claims he was talking to uh, Minoru Arakawa, the president of Nintendo of America, and was trying to convince him otherwise. And that the thing he said is, you know, if you want young boys to play your system, package Mario with it. If you want everyone to play your system, package Tetris with it. Maybe he said it, maybe he didn't. Maybe he's taking on a bigger role in this than he deserves. But whether that's apocryphal or not, it's a true statement. <laughs> so there are a lot of games that cater to that crowd now, from Bejeweled to Candy Crush. It all starts with Tetris. Our next game involves stuff that we all wish the construction industry could do instantly, and that is build roads between point A and point B very quickly. And that is... No, no, no. No, no, Jeff. Not roads. Railroads. Everywhere railroads. Railroads. That's the lesson of SimCity. <laughs> well, that's in the game. And I just wish construction was quicker. I know. I know. Hello. SimCity. So, even Elite... Elite took place in an open world, and you could theoretically play it forever if you wanted to, but it still had an objective, to become the elite. You know, by 1989, when SimCity comes out, most video games now in the arcade and on home consoles had evolved to the point where you were moving towards an objective. You weren't just looping through Space Invaders, and each time they get harder, you're going through a series of stages, fighting a series of bosses, getting to that end scene. Video games are all about winning or losing. There's really not much of anything in between. I mean, maybe you can keep track of how well you won or how badly you lost, but they're objective-based activities. So when Will Wright started taking around what he called at the time Metropolis to publishers in the uh, mid-1980s, nobody was interested because they were like, where's the score? Where's the objective? Where's the win condition? This is just a block set. This is just a sandbox. 
There's no game in that. You know, the final game did ship with scenarios. So it had, like, objective-based gameplay that you could tap into. But that was only added at the very end because Broderbund, when they finally did agree to take them under their wing as the affiliated label uh, distributor of that game, basically said, if you want us to distribute this, I mean, you got to put in something that has some focus gameplay in it. So Will Wright was never going to put those scenarios in. He just discovered that when he was making Raid on Bungling Bay, his previous game, that the most fun he had during the creation of that game was using his little terrain editor, his little tile editor, to build the little bases that the player had to destroy with their helicopter. And he was like, if I enjoyed this so much, somebody else is probably going to enjoy this too. Everyone thought he was nuts in the industry. But of course, SimCity was finally released, and then SimCity, even the very first one, became an absolute blockbuster. And this was a real paradigm shift in games. I mean, again, I'm sure you can point to something earlier that did something similar. You always can. But we're talking about mainstream zeitgeist kind of stuff here. Before SimCity, the idea that you would just use a video game to play, to screw around, to do whatever without any focused objective, just did not exist in the main zeitgeist. SimCity completely changed that. I mean, you don't have Minecraft, which we talked about earlier. You don't have Minecraft without SimCity. You don't have any sandbox game without SimCity taking that first step and showing people, hey, it is just fun to fool around on a computer. And we like doing it all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. So much so that we brave a curse in order to port sports games into our video games. <laughs> and that is John Madden football. John Madden football. So I'll leave it up to the audience to decide whether I'm referring to the Apple II version of the game or the Sega Genesis version of the game. Could be either one. But the point is, John Madden football is the only sports game that we have in our top 20 here. And it's one of only two sports games that we have in the entire top 100. I said this when we talked about one-on-one. I mean, yeah, this sports game pioneered this, this sports game pioneered that, yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, sports games are trying to be the most faithful representation of their sport as they possibly can be. The main inspiration for the baseball games is baseball. The main inspiration for the football games is football. I mean, you can't Okay, so this one is the first one that had stats that were this realistic. Okay, uh, great, but they're only trying to do that because they're emulating the sport. I mean, it's not like some big eureka moment in video game design history. John Madden football is different not because of what's going on in the game or quote-unquote on the field. It's different because it completely redefined our idea of what a sports game experience is. And it's really not so much about the first game in the series, particularly not on the Apple II, where it was a failure. Because it came out on the Apple II way after the Apple II was a dead platform. The game had been supposed to come out four years earlier. It never did because of a long series of delays. But once they had this game, and once they put it on the Sega Genesis, they decided, well, we should do another one, right? Of course. With uh, updated teams, updated players, uh, you know, throw in a couple of new uh, features as well. And we'll do another sequel the very next year. And the entire retail industry was like, 
don't do that. This game will not sell. You just put the game out. Sequels are all fine and good. I mean, sequels already existed in the video game industry. But you cannot put out a sequel to this game the very next year. Everyone's still playing your old game. Nobody's going to buy your new game. We like you. Your electronic arts, you've done well by us, so we'll take your game. But you know it's gonna, they're all going to come right back to you after we take them because nobody's going to buy it, right? Right. Well, of course, people did buy it. Annualized franchises. And it only really works for sports games. Well, no. So here's the thing. It used to only work for sports games, but that's not true anymore. Both Ubisoft with Assassin's Creed and Activision with Call of Duty figured out much later that if you have two teams working on a game series and have them each spend two years on a game, they can release a game every year in a series. Assassin's Creed has gone away from the annualization again, but they were one of the first game series to pioneer that in a non-sports setting. Call of Duty is still doing that, for better or for worse, though they had a major disaster in their last round of development, so they may actually miss a year. (laughs) We'll see, but if they do miss a year, it wasn't by design. A lot of people get kind of fed up with this annualization thing in in a non-sports setting because it feels like there's not a lot of innovation from game to game and it's just milking things. So I'm not really meaning to enter that debate. But John Madden football's really big contribution, if you will, to the way the video game industry is today is that idea of annualized franchises. Because before Madden, nobody would dare to put a sequel to a game out the very next year for a product like that. I'm not saying there's never been a game that had a sequel that came out the very next year. I mean, heck, Scramble, which we talked about earlier, had a sequel that came out like four months later in Super Cobra. But that really changed the landscape for sports games and ultimately video games. You can have a big franchise, you can put a big lot of hype around it, and then you can release one every year and the people will come and eat it up. Since everyone's eating up, they're going to need to make all the food for that. So we're going to have to build up a civilization. Civilization, again, you know, you could put it in the top 20. You could not put it in the top 20. I mean, it certainly belongs in the top 100 either way. Civilization, obviously, it spawned the entire 4X genre. Again, you can find games with 4X-style gameplay pre-Civilization, but it's the game that brought that into the zeitgeist. And 4X games have been big and continue to get some play. Civilization's still out there. The whole grand strategy game kind of spun off of that kind of gameplay as well. That's all great, but the real innovation of Civilization, and the reason that I think it belongs in the top 20, comes down to one singular thing, just like with Donkey Kong and jumping, and that is the tech tree. We all like our tech tree. Again, it's something that feels kind of intuitive and like, well, you know, why wouldn't somebody do that? That's true, but nobody really did before Civilization. Again, I'm sure you can find an example, but it's about what popularized and what made that the standard. Civilization was the first prominent example of a technology tree. Sid Meier does not remember exactly where the idea came from, unfortunately. He speculates that the reason they came up with that is when they were doing their research on the entirety of civilization, they were looking at a lot of books and whatnot that had timelines of history, timelines of this, timelines of that. 
and then it became kind of a natural evolution when looking at that stuff to incorporate it within the game as a branching tree of stuff. And that's logical. I mean, that's probably a big part of how it happened. It's just he doesn't remember exactly what the Eureka moment was. But the idea that you start with something weak and you have a few options as to how to proceed, and then from there you have other branching options, and from there you have other branching options, and so on and so forth. Civilization is really the game that first started that. Real-time strategy games definitely got that directly from there. Uh, You know, the Dune 2 developers have said that basically the idea of unlocking more powerful structures, and then when you build that structure, it gives you another unit type, etc. That was basically their version of implementing the tech tree. It wasn't literally a tech tree, but the idea that you have this building and they can build these units, but then once you build this building, you can build these units, and so on and so forth, that was their adaptation of the tech tree in another area. Certainly RPG skill trees come very much from the same place. And so there's a tree of some kind in just about any game that involves progression anymore. Some games have gone to other systems. They don't all have trees, but trees are still very common as a way of measuring progression. It all goes back to civilization. Now we get to cover the game in depth that we've talked about in a previous episode, and that is Ultima Underworld. Jimmy Mayer at the Digital Antiquarian has a great article on Ultima Underworld. I mean, most of his blog posts are great, let's face it. I think he was truly inspired when he did his post on Ultima Underworld, and I think he sums it up uh, pretty well as to why this game is so important. So most of what I'm going to say is, is basically just mirroring <laughs> what he said, so full credit where credit is due. Before Ultima Underworld, Games existed on a grid. That's the analogy he used. You're on this square, you move this way, you're on that square, you move this way, you're on that square, on and on through the world. It's the storybook approach to experiencing another place. Now, obviously, there are some exceptions to that. Flight simulators give you the ability to move around freely in a world. Elite gave you an ability to move around freely in a world. but In most character-based games, you were on the grid, and you were moving through a space in a very formulaic way. Even a real-time game like Dungeon Master that we talked about previously, it gave you the illusion of complete freedom of movement within a space, but it still was on a grid. It still kind of completely defined each step that you took along the way, even when it was in more real time. You could move towards the rear rear wall, but you could never put your nose directly up against the rear wall because once you hit that kind of final space, that's where you were. The level of immersion in a virtual world was always a bit abstracted in just about every game out there. Ultima Underworld took you off the grid. Complete freedom of movement within a virtual, three-dimensional space. This was thought to be impossible at the time Ultima Underworld came out. Not that it wouldn't be possible sometime in a distant utopian future, but the processing power to do that was considered simply not there. Flight simulators could do it, because with flight simulators, most of your game world is open sky. 
all of those early flight simulators, if you look at, at one of them, have very, very little detail on the ground. Buildings are usually just squares and cubes, and they're little roadways painted on. So they could get away with giving you freedom of movement in an immersive environment because there wasn't a lot of detail there. If you were going to be in a cave or in a dungeon or in a house, in a military installation, you couldn't let the player have full and complete real-time three-dimensional movement within that space. Well, I say three-dimensional, you usually didn't let them like bounce up and down yet, but I meant four directions. You couldn't let them have that complete freedom of movement in that space because you'd never be able to render that entire space. Two dimensions don't take a lot of processing power to render. Three-dimensional spaces, when you add depth to it, when you add a z-axis, that's a lot of math. And the poor processors on computers in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s couldn't do all of that math without the game like chugging along at like two frames per second. So even a game like Dungeon Master, you were along scripted paths. So the game always knew exactly what the next thing to render was. And so the game had enough time to stay ahead of you because you were on the grid. You were on a predictable movement track without deviation. With Ultima Underworld, Looking Glass completely changed that. There are a few heroes at Looking Glass. Certainly Ned Lerner did a lot of great things with 3D going back to the, the late 80s and doing stuff with electronic arts. You have the absolute genius that is Doug Church, who did a lot of great things, and Paul Newrath was a really good designer of games. But our hero here is Chris Green, because Chris Green is the one that figured out, well, you know, you can have a 3D world without really doing all the math. And so he basically created a, a 3D world in 2D. He basically was like, we'll just kind of forget about the Z-axis. It's not important. We'll treat our polygons, our uh, three-dimensional shapes, as if they were two-dimensional. And then we'll just kind of paste our textures on top of those two-dimensional surfaces. It leads to some weirdness in some places in the game where if you look real closely, it's like, that perspective doesn't look right at all. But it was close enough most of the time so that you could have a three-dimensional looking world, fully texture mapped, fully immersive, full freedom of movement, at least along a, a north-south-east-west axis, without all that processor-intensive math that slows the whole thing down. And you could really just chuck up any kind of graphical or perspective problem as the weirdness of the Ultima world in being underground. Sure. So Ultima Underworld is basically the linchpin for the modern video game industry. Because Ultima Underworld and its method of doing 3D directly leads into Wolfenstein 3D and the whole first-person shooter thing. It directly leads into the first Elder Scrolls game. That's a series that very much has come to define immersive worlds in 3D spaces in the present day. Both Wolfenstein 3D and the first Elder Scrolls game, Arena, were directly, in part, inspired by Ultima Underworld. I mean, the creators have said that. It's kind of funny. Wolfenstein 3D actually came out before Ultima Underworld because it took them a long time to get that together. But the reason that John Carmack did a textured 
three-dimensional world in Wolfenstein 3D is because John Romero used to work with Paul Newrath at Origin, and so he was still dialed into the Looking Glass guys. So he had been talking with Newrath or whatever on the phone, and Newrath was describing all this stuff they were doing. It's like, yeah, it's great. We're doing these textured walls and this and that. And so then Romero went to Carmack and was like, can you do that? Carmack thought for a moment was like, yeah. And so Carmack came up with his own system to do it. He wasn't like specifically copying the Underworld system. But the reason it even thought to create an immersive world like that was because Ultima Underworld was in development. It's a watershed moment. It's the moment, as, as Jimmy says, that we got off the grid and could now start thinking about immersing ourselves in fully realized worlds. And that's still the goal of most AAA video games today, and even many indie games, is to fully immerse us in a space outside of our own world. And it all comes back to Ultima Underworld. All right. Well, since we're in the underworld, we're going to have to be alone in the dark for a while. So there were two approaches to 3D in the early 90s. I'm sure there were more than that. We're going to call it two. One is the approach that we just discussed, which is this fully immersive, textured this, textured that, use tricks of various types, whether it be ignoring the Z-axis or doing ray casting or whatever, to uh, fudge the three-dimensional aspects of thing and make the whole thing run smoothly and a full 3D world. Well, that worked great on computer setups that had the power to do that kind of thing, but not everything was ready to do 3D in that way. Particularly consoles were not ready to do 3D in that way. So there was another approach to doing three dimensions that occurred at exactly the same time, or roughly the same time here, and it's the approach that was used by Alone in the Dark. Alone in the Dark is a French game. Alone in the Dark is really the progenitor of survival horror, even though it was not called a survival horror game. But more importantly than that aspect of it, of creating essentially a new genre of video game, a genre that still kind of exists today, though a lot of survival horror is more action-y than it used to be, beyond that, the key thing that it did is figured out that if you have a machine that doesn't have the processing power to create a fully realized 3D world, you can still create 3D spaces for characters to interact in. What you can do is you can create a 3D model of a space using wireframes. So, you know, just like vector graphics or just like the dungeons and wizardry. You just have wireframes outlining your world. And then on top of that, you drop a pre-rendered two-dimensional background that can be highly detailed because it's pixel art and pixel art is relatively cheap. Within this space, you won't be able to quite give the player complete freedom of movement in a 3D space because you're kind of creating an artificial 3D space. The wireframes give it some depth, but you can't just walk to every nook and cranny. So then we're going to very strictly control the camera angles. You'll only see this room from this angle. You'll only see this room from either this angle if you're on this side of the room or that angle if you're on that side of the room. So we'll kind of fake giving you a 3D space. This was critical to the rise of three dimensions in the console space. Now, Alone in the Dark's not a console game, not natively a console game. I think there was a 3DO port, but it was a PC game. Resident Evil used this approach and was directly inspired to do so by Alone in the Dark. I mean, heck, the vast majority of the Resident Evil game 
was inspired by Alone in the Dark. And what they didn't take from Alone in the Dark, they took from Sweet Home, which was a kind of horror RPG on the Famicom that Capcom had done a few years prior. Final Fantasy VII used this technique. And Kitase, Yoshinori Kitase, who was the director of that game, says that they were inspired by Alone in the Dark for their way of doing graphics. That was one of their touchstones. So Alone in the Dark and Ultima Underworld between them, I mean, they're, they're almost a pair. Between those two games, you had two new methods of making 3D worlds, and those two games were our entree into real immersive 3D gaming and uh, therefore are both incredibly influential for how the industry is today. Certainly. Alex, we're, we're lost in the dark down here. I'm going to take this shotgun. I'm going to hand you this rocket launcher. And we're dun, going to have to fight dun, our dun, way through dun, hell dun, 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 in order dun, to save dun, ourselves. Dun, dun. So we're going to go do some doom. Because we just talked about John Carmack <laughs> being inspired to make Wolfenstein 3D and then doom. So you'll notice the Wolfenstein 3D, I mean, you'll notice now that Wolfenstein 3D isn't anywhere on our list. Again, in a list of 200 games, Wolfenstein 3D would appear. But I didn't want to cluster too many games of the same type altogether. So really the chain is Ultima Underworld, Wolfenstein 3D, Doom. And Ultima Underworld is ridiculously super important, and Doom is ridiculously stupid important. And I didn't want to do three in a row, so Wolfenstein 3D got the cut. But you can't have a list like this without Doom. You can really still, and I've said this before, divide the entire history of video games essentially into before Doom and after Doom. That's how important Doom is. Before Doom, action games were two-dimensional. They were side-scrollers, mostly. Maybe some overhead view. They were third person in one form or another. They were fun, they were interesting, but they were not immersive. They didn't make you feel like you were in a space. There were some RPGs or adventure games that could feel more immersive, but those games by their nature were slower-paced games or more tactically-oriented games. They weren't action games. You couldn't have an immersive environment and a fast-paced action all at the same time. Wolfenstein 3D got us there part of the way, but it was still very cartoony. It was Nazis, and who doesn't like shooting Nazis? But it was a very cartoony rendering of a world. Doom brought it to a whole new level of immersion by great use of audio, great use of lighting, because it was the first game that it did where you could actually have dynamic lighting. It just had a really kind of twisted world for you to explore. It was first person. All you see of yourself is your gun or your chainsaw sticking out in front of you. It was off the grid in the same way that Ultima Underworld had been off the grid, so you could zoom around any which way. It was lightning fast. Stuff came at you. Press A. No one had seen something like this. Not even Wolfenstein was anywhere near this in terms of the level of intensity and in terms of the atmosphere and the immersion. No action game had accomplished any of that before, and that's before you got to multiplayer. Because, of course, on top of that, they decided to invent a little thing called Deathmatch. 
And certain people at that company didn't lose their mind playing Deathmatch constantly. <laughs> oh, yeah. The entire paradigm of video games as they exist today is basically following in, in Doom's footsteps. The whole shooter aspect of it, largely first person, but even third person immersive shooters are basically following in the footsteps of Doom. Any game that is a game where you're shooting at other at things, if it's in three dimensions, is basically following in the footsteps to one degree or another of Doom. Multiplayer games where you're shooting at each other are entirely following in the footsteps of Doom. Most of the major game franchises of today, from Fortnite to Gears of War to Call of Duty, they all go back to that initial spark that is Doom. And some of them change it this way and some of them change it that way. But Doom was that inflection point. There were some first-person games before Doom, even first-person shooters like Wolfenstein. But Doom was the perfect storm of capturing the zeitgeist. It came right as the World Wide Web was opening up because it came out at the very end of 1993. People were just starting to get on the internet. We're just starting to talk to each other. We're just starting to form communities. And Doom was just the talk of the gaming world. And it just inhabited the gaming zeitgeist in a way that was pretty darn unprecedented. We're still living in Doom's world today. Before Doom, after Doom. Quarterpass says that if everything is divided at the Doom line, doesn't that mean it's inherently the most influential? Is there another game for which we could say the same for Space War, <laughs> after Space War? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, you know, I didn't rank these numerically. If I were ranking them numerically, there is a very good chance I would put Doom number one. All right. Yeah, I mean, honestly. Makes sense. Since we're doing Doom and we have busted out of the underground darkness, we obviously caused an earthquake, so we have to play Quake too. Right. So I said I don't want to stack too many games together, and that's why I left out Wolfenstein 3D. And then here's Quake. Hey, Quake. <laughs> right after Doom. There's a big reason for this, though. Doom was what people commonly call 2.5D. It's not really 2.5D in like a technical sense, but it's what people call it. And what they mean by that is 3D level design, though even that was faked because you didn't have height, 2D objects. Everything in that game was pixels. All the monsters coming out of you at you were not polygonal models. They were all collections of pixels. With Quake, everything went full 3D. Everything went full polygonal. That was an important moment. Is that an important enough moment to put it on the top 20? No, it's not. But we want to put that out there. Two things put it on the top 20. Online, internet, matchmaking built into the game. As I said, you know, Doom even came out like right at the beginning of the period when people were getting online. So you had multiplayer, you had deathmatch, but it was primarily LAN-based play. Or maybe you could dial directly into the other player's modem that you wanted to play with or something like that. There were third-party things like Duango that came out to facilitate playing the game online. But that was not native functionality within Doom. It was basically meant to be land-based, primarily. Quake came out in 96. It came out now at the time when the internet is really coalescing, and lots of people are on it, and so it has online internet matchmaking. It's the beginnings 
again, I'm sure you can find another game that did it sooner, but it's really the beginnings in the public consciousness of being able to find other people online, connect with them in some way through a server or a matchmaking service or whatever, and have adventures with people anywhere in the world. I mean, there are obviously other examples of that. You had MUDs already, you had Neverwinter Nights, but this is in the context of a graphically intense, fast-paced action game. And that was pretty unprecedented. Definitely. It was also the point that modding started to become a big thing. I mean, there were mods before that. Doom supported a lot of mods. But the modding in Doom kind of took it by surprise. And so, I mean, it was a game that you could get into the files. You could get into the WAD files and manipulate them and make changes. It was fine with that. But they didn't, like, specifically create the game in a way that was meant to be user-friendly to modding. Quake was deliberately opened up to be a very moddable game. Even though there were earlier examples of mods, mod culture really starts with Quake. And the other thing that Quake is really big on is middleware. They licensed the Quake engine to other companies. Again, they did that a little bit with some of their earlier stuff as well. But the Quake engine was one of the first big middleware engines to take off. Obviously, the Unreal Engine that comes just a little further on takes off even more. So it's not so much about the gameplay improvements between Doom and Quake, because Quake is pretty similar to Doom, and yeah, that's great that all the enemies are polygons, but that's a pretty minor change. But online internet matchmaking, actively supporting and encouraging mod communities and making it relatively easy for mod communities to get into your stuff, and the idea of building a really great engine and then licensing it to other companies to make their own stuff. Those are all reasons why I think it's fair to put both Doom and Quake in our top 20. And now we are down to the top three. Well, not the top three, the final three. These are in chronological order. They're not in numerical rank order. The last three that we got to cover here. That much is true. To start that off, we have Super Mario 64. So Super Mario 64... Really, these next two we can take in tandem, because uh, we put both Super Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time on the list. The important things about these games is they taught us how we should navigate the creation of a 3D space. Fully 3D, six axes and all of that. There had been other games before that, there'd be other games after it, but these are the games that kind of defined the best practices for how the cameras should work. Not saying they always work perfectly in those games, but the way they approach cameras is still basically the way we approach cameras today. They kind of define how you follow a character in a 3D space, how you keep track of other objects and other opponents and whatnot within a 3D space. Of course, Ocarina of Time specifically is in here primarily for one thing and one thing only, and that's Z-targeting. I mean, the fact that we still call it Z-targeting, even though no console anymore has a Z-button, shows you how influential that idea was. They came up with the method, okay, if we're going to put Link in a fully three-dimensional world, but we need him to be able to focus on enemies to, like, kill them, how are we going to do that? You know, that's the method they came up with, you know, locking on to a specific enemy and then having the whole camera system change so that you're just rotating around that thing you've locked on to instead of freeform willy-nilly. That was hugely influential. So I don't have uh, huge numbers of things to say about either of these, except just to say how we navigate 3D worlds today, particularly in third-person, non-shooting type games, 
is largely still the legacy of Super Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time. Our final game is Grand Theft Auto 3. Most AAA games today, even if they have a specific objective, are all about putting you into a large world that you can explore somewhat at your leisure, and you can follow the main story, or you can just go off and collect 50 of this and 500 of that instead by finding all the nooks and crannies. Grand Theft Auto 3 is really kind of the beginning of that. Obviously, Elite was very much a pioneer of the open world. There were other Grand Theft Auto games before Grand Theft Auto 3 that did open world in a top-down 2D perspective. But Grand Theft Auto 3 is our entree into the modern AAA game experience, whether that is God of War, by which I mean the latest game called God of War, not the first game called God of War, whether that's Assassin's Creed Odyssey, whether that's Red Dead Redemption 2, this idea that you just have this huge world, Skyrim, where you have landmarks and you have places and you can explore and you can do this. And there are lots of missions and side quests undertake, and I guess there's a main plot that you should get around to at some point, too. A lot of that starts with Grand Theft Auto 3. Again, obviously, it's not the first quote-unquote open world, but it's the game that shifted the entire industry in that direction. Because nobody had quite seen something that open, freeform, but also polygonal, and lots to do and lots to see and so on and so forth. We're still living in in the Grand Theft Auto 3 world today in video games. I really do think that that's the last major paradigm shift that we've seen. But if you look at today's games, you have first and third person shooters, some of which are multiplayer based, more so than single player based, some of which are team based rather than individual based and you have the newest Battle Royale games, but it's, it's first- and third-person shooters. You have RPGs. You have, you know, in the, in the indie space, you still have roguelikes and all of that stuff. You have a few platformers still hanging around, a few adventure-type games hanging around, and then you have these big open-world, we-try-to-be-everything-at-once games hanging around, which is why I almost put System Shock on here, and even at one point had Deus Ex on here as well, because... There's elements in there that are so influential that I almost put one or, or the other of those games on the top 20 list as well. And then you have, you know, big open world, lots of stuff to do, lots of places to explore kind of games. And you have sandboxes like Minecraft and you have casual games. And, and it feels like the list that we've got here kind of encapsulates all those styles of gameplay. Grand Theft Auto 3 was kind of the last piece of the puzzle in that sense because it was the first, like, really big, expansive explore everything kind of 3D space in that kind of game. So obviously there have been uh, innovations and whatnot since then, but in terms of games that shift the entire industry in a new direction, there's probably a game out there right now that is in fact shifting the industry in an entire new direction. It's just it'll be another 5 or 10 or 15 years before we realized what happened. So for the moment... I would end with Grand Theft Auto 3 in terms of the absolute, positively most influential games of all time. That pretty much concludes our 100th episode, wrapping up the 100 most influential games in video game history. 
And since we've recorded all of this in one big go, you of course know what we're going to talk about in our next episode, 101, right? Of course I do. And I've totally known that for weeks now. Sure. So I'm going back to the Smithsonian. By the time this episode's out, I think I will have already been to the Smithsonian. Isn't this October 1st? It's October 15th. October 15th. Yeah, so by the time this airs, I will have uh, been there and back again from the Smithsonian. But at the time that we're recording this, I will be very shortly going to the Smithsonian to do uh, participate in another round of oral history interviews with gaming luminaries. This time we're doing people that were involved with early adventure games. We're talking to Warren Robinette, Scott Adams, and Dave Lebling. I've been doing a lot of research on early adventure games recently, and particularly a lot of research on Infocom, because we'll be interviewing David Lebling. So I think the time has finally come to do a subject that I've been consciously avoiding doing in the past, because, for one thing, Jimmy Mayer on Digital Antiquarian has already done such a great job of it. But uh, let's go ahead and dive in, since I'm doing all the research anyway, and uh, take a bit of a look at Infocom, the first and last name in high-quality text adventures. All right, we'll do some reading on Infocom next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be pre-ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 